From APM Reports, this is Educate, a podcast in collaboration with the Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. Marches and demonstrations at Missouri and other universities define a season of unrest on many college campuses. There have been lots of news stories like this in recent years, confrontations and protests on campuses across the country against acts of racism and speakers who espouse controversial beliefs. At Yale University, a faculty member is yelled at by students. It is not about creating an intellectual space. It is not. You understand that? It's about creating a home here. Some days it seems college administrators are walking a tricky tightrope between protecting free speech and protecting students from racial harassment. On this episode of the podcast, we're talking about free speech and inclusion on campus. More speech is a better alternative than less speech or regulated speech. Do campuses have to choose between protecting free speech and creating a civil climate? Students of color are exercising their freedom of speech when they stand outside of a venue and protest people bringing hate to their campuses. Or is the tension between free speech and inclusion an oversimplification? Can they have both? We're going to start this episode at the University of Minnesota. Our research fellow, John Hernandez, has spent the last few months examining the campus's struggle to find that balance and how much of that work is done by administrators and how much of it falls to students. John starts us off. A bridge at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis connects the two sides of campus on the east and west banks of the Mississippi River. When school's in session, the upper deck of the bridge is full of pedestrians and bicyclists. It's partially covered so you might hear an echo as we walk through, and some trains and traffic rumbling underneath us. The bridge walls are covered with panels painted in bold colors. Every fall, student groups get space to paint murals here. And for the past three years, this bridge has been the site of a running battle of words on campus. A student group's mural on the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus has ignited conversation and controversy. The U of M College Republicans group painted this mural yesterday. A local yesterday TV station was there the first time it happened in 2016. The College Republicans mural, which read in part, Build the Wall, was vandalized with the words, Stop White Supremacy, something the group's... The next year, the College Republicans painted a pro-Trump message on the bridge. Someone painted fight racism and other messages over it. And again in 2018, the college Republicans used their space on the bridge to question the university's policy on inclusive pronouns. Someone painted queer power across the panel. After the first incident, the Build the Wall incident, then-university president Eric Kaler released a statement. He said, We recognize that some in our community found the panel's message to be hurtful. However, we support free speech and will not tolerate vandalism. Students were not happy with Kaler's response. He would later release another statement affirming his support for a more inclusive campus. Then, a few weeks later, the bridge panel painted by the Muslim Student Association was vandalized with the word ISIS. That's Abir Saeda. This is her at a protest on Donald Trump's inauguration day. It was not long after the Build the Wall incident and the ISIS incident. Tensions on campus were high. Saida was president of the student government at the time and one of the few students of color to hold that post at the University of Minnesota. I want to give a big shout out to the youth and students today who have always been at the forefront of demanding change and progress in our communities. 
Saida graduated in 2017, but she agreed to meet me on campus to talk about the different controversies on the bridge and her experiences on campus. It was after the spring semester ended. The bridge was emptier. Saida preferred it that way. She hasn't been back to campus since she graduated. Did you cross this frequently on your way to campus? Every day. Saida sort of shakes her body like she has a bad feeling and she's trying to brush it off. I just have a lot of memories here. One of those memories was waking up the morning after the college Republicans painted Build the Wall on the bridge. Saida had dozens of messages on her phone. People were sending her pictures of it. Students said they felt outraged, even scared. As we walked onto the bridge, surrounded by last year's murals, she summed up the feeling on campus. How dare these people write something like that on a literal bridge, <laughs> build a wall on the bridge, on this institution, around these students. Do they not know what that means? They understand the weight of their words. Saida had to get to work, especially after President Kaler's first statement caused frustration to boil over on campus. Her busy schedule got even busier as rallies and protests started happening in response. I like go, went back on my Google calendar and like my emails and whatever, and I'm watching and I'm like, that's me? Like I was doing... I was working easily 60 hours a week between my like actual paying jobs, student government classes, and like my life. She was used to offering support and assurance to students frequently targeted by hateful speech. Students that she says administrators weren't speaking to directly. Standing on the bridge, she recounted one of the most important lessons from her undergraduate experience. There's no one that faces like a first responder student trauma like other students do. Whether it's not cops, not the student support services here, not full-time employees, definitely not administrators. The first person that faces the trauma of students is other students. Saida described the effect that had on her. The extra work, the protests, the emotional labor that it took to support students of color who weren't getting the support they needed from administrators. Overnighters trying to plan certain things like walkouts and protests and meetings and this and that. And I was like, I don't know why I do this. But it's work she continues to do today. She's the director of equity and inclusion at Students United. It's a nonprofit that advocates for students in the Minnesota state system of colleges. A lot of these issues are not limited to the University of Minnesota. It's astounding how many institutions this kind of experience can be valuable in. And any place else I work, I think I'm still holding on to, I need to put these skills to use or else what a waste of my four years <laughs> in undergrad. While we're talking on the bridge, Saida's friend Mina Keon walks up. Keon is another important part of Saida's work on campus. student body president. Oh, that's awesome. Abir Saida specifically chose Kion, also a woman of color, to work in student government with her two years ago. Kion remembers the first time she noticed Saida. And hearing Abir speak and talking about how everybody should have access to institutional power. And I just remember being shocked by that because it wasn't something that I ever even thought about. This school year, Kion takes on the role of student body president. She's well aware of the legacy of students of color before her. And realizing that students in like the 60s were protesting for some of the fundamental things that we still don't have on our campus today is quite sad. But then also just reminds you that you have to keep that torch going and you have to make sure that new generations of gophers can continue that fight so that one day, hopefully, something can actually change. Kian believes they can get there. Otherwise, she wouldn't be putting in the effort. I don't think I would be giving away my free labor uh, year after year if I didn't feel that 
my unique voice and presence in this organization could make that impact. That was our research fellow, John Hernandez, at the University of Minnesota. Some will argue that Abir Saeda's efforts are the way it's supposed to work. She followed the First Amendment game plan with her advocacy and organizing. You're supposed to fight free speech with more speech. University of Minnesota media law professor Jane Kirtley sees it that way. She's a free speech expert. Although the university should be a safe and welcoming place for everyone, it's not a place to be insulated from ideas that they find offensive. The, the remedy is not to have somebody take care of you. The remedy is to speak out against the things that you disagree with, to take on ideas with which you disagree, um, and to stand up for yourself. Kirtley strongly believes that suppressing hateful ideas makes them more powerful. She also worries about the relationship students have to the First Amendment. I'm horrified by the fact that so many people, not just at a university campus, but anywhere, um, really don't believe in the First Amendment. They just don't. Um, they believe it to the extent in, to the extent that it supports their viewpoint. They are highly intolerant of viewpoints expressed with which they do not agree. A recent survey by the Knight Foundation found that the majority of college students favor a campus environment that allows for all types of speech. But the amount of support varies based on the identity of those being asked. For example, 74% of college men surveyed support protecting hate speech, whereas that percentage was below 50% for black students, women, Jewish students, gay and lesbian students, and gender non-binary students. The majority of survey respondents said they feel like the political and social climate on campus hinders them from speaking freely. Jonathan Friedman says that echoes some of what he hears from students on campuses across the U.S. Friedman is the director of the Campus Free Speech Project at Penn America. It's a nonprofit that focuses on freedom of expression in literature. Penn has been talking to students across the country about inclusion and free speech. We're trying to encapsulate there the widening divide and polarization that we've seen on college campuses, um, where increasingly uh, it's as though different people on campuses are inhabiting different realities about what's happening on college campuses. Friedman says the tension playing out on college campuses is often more complicated than whether or not people support the First Amendment. It's about competing visions of what their universities should stand for that have often been reduced to an argument about free speech. For the most part, it's uh, all about how individuals on the other side of the political spectrum are doing everything wrong and how, you know, we we often get these kind of one-sided stories as though there isn't um, a dynamic involving multiple actors kind of jockeying for position, jockeying for, in in some ways, um, claims to what the university stands for. Friedman was invited to the University of Minnesota to facilitate roundtable discussions on free speech and diversity. He is a staunch believer in protecting the First Amendment. He also believes that the isolated, single stories we hear about free speech conflicts at universities need more context. When we're thinking about talking about, you know, literally over a hundred incidents on thousands of campuses across the country, um, really trying to, you know, it behooves us to understand um, the details of what really happened there with, with greater attention to um, their nuance, their subjectivity, and their complexity. Friedman and Penn caution against the oversimplified perception of college campuses as hotbeds of tension over free speech. 
It's not as simple as snowflake liberals versus callous conservatives. What people have been learning and um, what, what, have, what has been offered to them uh, to digest in the news, in a lot of news media, has been kind of stereotypical, um, simplified narratives that fit broad patterns but often aren't necessarily doing justice to the facts. Friedman says what's happening on college campuses is not that different from what's happening in the United States at large. We came to see so many of the trends on college campuses as really stemming from actors across the political spectrum and wrapped up with national political trends around polarization, where essentially both sides view those on the other side with extreme and growing animosity and uh, vilification. Public universities in particular are under more scrutiny about what's being said on campus. Friedman called it a tug of war. The more that colleges and universities and certainly their senior administrators do to um, tell their students, you know, what are the rules for free speech, what are the um, values surrounding inclusion on this campus, um, the more that students on the campus uh, will leave it with a better civic education about these principles. Friedman says a lot of schools express their commitment to inclusivity and try to create institutional support systems. But such a deep level of social change can be hard for big institutions to achieve. So we've seen many administrators handle these situations in ways that comport well with a defensive and support of free speech and, and a support of you know, fostering dialogue. But I still think there's, there's probably more to be done to empower more of them to do more on more campuses. And so I think it's often it comes down to the difference between you know, saying you're committed to something and then really walking that, that walk. While administrators and campus leaders try to figure out how free speech and inclusion on campus coexist, Friedman says students of color feel the weight of inadequate or imbalanced responses to incidents of racial harassment or the presence of controversial speakers. They should realize that they have to take incidents where inclusion has been put in jeopardy as seriously as they would uh, situations where speech has been put in jeopardy. Otherwise, they risk giving the appearance of um, seeming to protect, you know, semi-hateful or fully hateful uh, speech, uh, but not really being as concerned about situations where someone has been... um, attacked or uh, hurt by that speech. And so in those moments where you have people who have been um, deeply hurt or offended or attacked, you know, what they want to hear is how they're supported and how they're valued and how the university um, cares for their well-being. Um, That's not the best moment to, you know, introduce principles of the First Amendment. Friedman says schools still have a lot of work to do to get ahead of the problem. There's no question that many of them need to uh, think more about how they um, establish a climate uh, for inclusion that really resonates with students and that communicates them strongly, how the university believes in that. And the more that they, that they do that preemptively and proactively, uh, not just in times of crisis, uh, the stronger that their response in a crisis will be. One of the most frustrating things about the work we do at the USC Race and Equity Center is that it is almost always after there has been a crisis somewhere. 
That's Sean Harper. He's the founder and director of the Race and Equity Center at the University of Southern California. He has studied racial climate on college campuses for more than 15 years. A lot of Harper's work involves interviewing students about their experiences. He says that when administrators fail to demonstrate how free speech and diversity and inclusion coexist, students get fed up. Then administrators have an even greater task to take on. College and university presidents and other senior leaders call us in the aftermath of something. After there's been a hate crime or a student protest or there's some incident that has made national news. I sure wish I could get them to be more preventative and proactive. They certainly could save themselves lots of time and money, but more importantly, they could save their students the trauma and the frustrating experiences and frankly, the attrition, the attrition of students of color who leave institutions because they are just fed up with the lack of institutional response to racism on campuses. I wish I could get presidents and other leaders to be more proactive. Harper says some of this has to do with how college administrators and leaders see themselves and their campuses. They're delusional. They're absolutely delusional about the realities of race on their campuses. And they're also making presumptions about the goodness of their campuses and the climate, uh, the racial climate on their campuses. I find it psychologically quite fascinating, to be honest, that they're able to, like, read the news and understand that, yeah, these things are happening in other places, but yet be not so present and not so aware of the suffering that occurs at the places they lead. He says on many college campuses, shortcomings with administrative responses mean students of color take on more work, organizing protests and teach-ins, and counseling and teaching one another. It's a thing that I think about just about every day. It is the extra unpaid labor that students of color perform at their institutions in support of themselves, but also as an effort to try to get the institution to be better and more inclusive for future generations of students of color. Black students having to take on the burden of teaching other Black students how to successfully navigate a toxic, racist campus climate. Like, literally, like schooling other Black students who were coming in about how to successfully navigate and negotiate and survive these places. Meanwhile, their white friends are you know, like playing Frisbee happily on the campus lawn. They're going to fraternity parties on the weekends. They're going to sporting events. He says none of this is new. What has not been consistent, though, is people feeling empowered to do something about the racism that they were experiencing on their campuses. Harper says college administrators and leaders need to respond with more of their own speech as well. To start, they need to have serious conversations with students of color about what it's like for them on campus. That can inform the work that needs to be done to make it better. Like, you need to talk to students about the realities of race and their racialized experiences. And for administrators to be direct about their language to not use vague terms when talking about a specific problem. You know, the people don't explicitly 
say that it's racial equity that they're concerned about and that they're interested in racism and racist institutional practices, policies, norms, curricula, um, and so on, right, that sustain and reproduce racial inequity. In other words, like, we got to be much more precise in our conversations about equity. So if we're on campuses talking to students um, and ours is an equity conversation, I would argue that when we're talking to students of color, especially that, you know, we we have to be clear that we want to know about your racialized experiences, not just these sort of broad, imprecise uh, reflections on on equity or on the student experience broadly. Harper cited Southwestern College, a community college in Chula Vista, California, as an example of a school doing things the right way. Typically, when Harper and his colleagues visit a campus and create a report about the racial climate, the schools keep those reports private. They made the report public. They distributed it, you know, to the whole campus. They had me come back to facilitate, I think it was like a three or four hour session with faculty and staff on the campus in which I walked through our findings and our recommendations and entertained questions from them and engaged them in some strategic thinking about what they might do as individuals as well as a a campus community in response to the challenges. This fall, student groups at the University of Minnesota will return to the bridge to paint their murals. There will be new students who have no memory of the incidents that have taken place there in the past. There will be a new university president. Her name is Joan Gable. The former university president, Eric Kaler, retired after the last school year. With new leadership, many of the people we talked to hope the climate on campus can change. That's it for this episode. Tell us what you think about what you just heard. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Educate Podcast. That's one word. Or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. And you can find more of John Hernandez's reporting about the University of Minnesota and about navigating free speech and inclusivity at college campuses at our website, apmreports.org. This episode was produced by John Hernandez, Alex Baumhart, and Chris Julin, and was mixed by Michael Osborne. We partner with The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.